1: Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. And today I want to talk a bit about how Franklin Roosevelt in 1941 began to transform the American peacetime economy into a war production economy. Now, about a year ago, probably now, I did a series of podcasts about Roosevelt and Churchill from 1939 to 41, um, and you may well have listened to those. Uh, And they were really uh, all about the uh, decline in uh, military and diplomatic power of Britain in the face of crisis uh, in 1940 and the uh, almost unstoppable force that Nazi Germany seemed to present and the response that came from America all the way up to Roosevelt's election in November, or re-election in November 1940. But Roosevelt, now with a uh, a Congress who saw little al- other alternative than to uh, go with the fairly unpopular um, policy of uh, assisting uh, short of war, the Allied powers, uh, the British and the French, though now obviously at this point France had fallen, um, had um, uh, to go along with uh, Roosevelt and his commitment to uh, creating the Arsenal Democracy uh, that he spoke about in his Arsenal Democracy speech, um, Fireside Chat, uh, in 1940. Um, but the actual creation of this um, economic war machine was another matter altogether. In his book, Freedom from Fear, America 1929-1945, to 1945, uh, David Kennedy writes about Roosevelt um, and in this period of time. He says, Roosevelt had committed the United States to becoming the great arsenal of democracy. Now it remained to stop that arsenal, a Herculean task after years of willful neglect, of military preparedness. Time was the most precious of military assets, and America had already squandered much of it. Dollars cannot buy yesterday, Admiral Harold Stark had said in pleading for the Two Ocean Navy Bill in 1940, but 1941 saw a flood of dollars direct, um, directed towards buying the weapons for a tomorrow that was approaching with hurricane speed. By this date, money was no problem, as Senator Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., declared uh, to General Arnold, it is the general feeling of Congress that as far as I can gather among public opinion throughout the country to provide all of the money necessary for national defence. So all you have to do is ask for it. This shows a huge turnaround in public attitudes. The scale and the scope and the seriousness of the war and the threat that Hitler presented and Japanese militarism in the Pacific presented had clearly, at this point, at least in the view of Henry Cabot Lodge, managed to filter down uh, throughout all levels of kind of national debate and I guess national consciousness, so that there was a, a broad consensus that America had to arm itself and very quickly. How much America was or should be prepared to ha- arm other countries was a different question altogether. David Kennedy continues. Ask the administration did for $7 billion in lend-lease authorizations and for $13.7 billion in requisitions for the army and navy before 1941 was over. A mammoth increase over the paltry $2.2 billion appropriated for defence in 1940. That rising tide of military spending began at last to float the wallowing hulk of the economy out of the Slough of Depression as nearly 1 million draftees filed into hastily hammered green-timid military training camps, and as war orders poured into the big industrial centres, unemployment sank below 10% for the first time in more than a decade. And this is something that is often uh, lost when uh, students are studying the Great Depression, that nothing that Roosevelt did, short of rearmament, finally really killed the Great Depression, and it was... Um, the uh, the wartime arms boom that brought uh, unemployment down to almost negligible levels. This is why there's so much anxiety in 1945 that the Great Depression was about to recommence. And it must have been fully uh, in the minds of most Americans that it had been the war and munitions factories that had done the trick. This also shows us that at the end of the day, Despite the critics of uh, the New Deal and the protestations of um, small government libertarians everywhere, when governments um, put inject massive uh, amounts of um, public money into an economy, it, right, it um, brings it out of depression, it brings it out of deflation uh, very, very swiftly. However, um, bonds, IOUs, and dollars themselves don't quickly transma- translate into B seventeen bombers and warships. They, of course, there money was at this point no problem. Uh, a sovereign state can print as much money as it, it likes, particularly if there is um, uh, if there is excess capacity in the economy, i.e. resources that are standing idle, manpower uh, and raw materials. Um, If money wasn't a problem, there were still other obstacles. Um, Ironically, the first one was um, prosperity itself. Many manufacturers, seeing the huge influx of money into the economy, were reluctant to convert their plants into uh, factories for uh, munitions and other e- essential war items knowing that the uh, the margins on these were not brilliant and instead um, assuming that uh, with all this new cash sloshing around the, in the economy they would be the ones to make uh, attractive products for the uh, civilian market uh, and those products would be the ones that generate the, the, the biggest amount of income um, Kennedy writes in the beginning, most of our industrialists were rather cautious about having their companies undertake war work, um, the RFC um, head uh, and security of, uh, Secretary of Commerce Jesse H. Jones said. They didn't want to invest a lot of their own funds in equipment to manufacture things um, they believed would not be in demand after the shooting ceased. So, um, there was uh, an assumption that the war might be relatively quick, or that um, the war might with Germany might not happen at all. That um, you might wind up um, supplying the military for six months to a year, and then have to uh, retool the factory once all these orders had dried up, uh, and there was uh, no prospect of uh, of, of conflict. Occurring, the the obvious um, case study here uh, would be the automobile industry. Um, the automobile industry showed um, the stiffening competition between the demands of the civilian market and the demands of uh, the military on the economy. Um, it's very interesting that you can look at certain parallels with um, German rearmament and see certain uh, similar tensions uh, emerge, as uh, like other the podcast, really. I've talked a lot about that one, and you can find that uh, in, in the archive. Um, Detroit, for example, was expecting 4 million cars uh, to be sold in 1941, which was it would have been a million more than would have been solved in 1939. Walter Reuther, who I've spoken about before in this podcast, uh, the United uh, Auto Workers Vice President, suggested that um, the remaining uh, estimated 50% of idle capacity would be um, converted into military aircraft, uh, and that would be under government contract. And the car makers absolutely refused uh the um ability uh speed with which one can turn uh, a car chassis into a fighter plane is so i'm told one of the, the kind of the the, the key utilizations of the the auto industry in uh, arms um arms making um but uh the car manufacturers in detroit said no the uh turning of a vehicle, and an automobile plant, into the making of airplanes uh, was not not just a a matter of having um, a different product come out of the end of the factory. Instead, it required new investment, uh, the hiring and creation of new designers and engineers, retooling, retraining of workers, uh, and above all, the diversion of resources from the four million cars that were expected to be sold. They were probably going to be hugely disappointed in those targets, by the way, um, as a result of uh, petrol rationing and other wartime restrictions. In the end, only so, uh, throughout the course of the war, only a couple of hundred vehicles uh, ever get sold. That is how short on um, new cars America was by 1945. So they would need it, it required new investment, but it also, um, Reuters' plan, um, would hand the auto industry over to one customer, and that would be the government. It would be an extremely powerful government and an um, extremely powerful customer. And the auto manufacturers feared that they would never really leave government employment. And um, they had the... Um, Two new deals of the 1930s had not been particularly well liked by um, automobile manufacturers um, and new de- and um, uh, the kind of heads of American capital in general. They had seen um, government officials pester them about uh, workers rights about um, working practices. Uh, about uh, fair trading practices and and a whole range of of other things. And to say that they despised the government would probably be fairly accurate. Uh, And they had no desire to be in the thrall of such a a kind of a fickle business partner as as they saw it. Another problem, um, another organisational problem, um, emerged and Roosevelt... Um, was uh, unable to see a coordinating body that would be powerful enough to organise economic mobilisation, um, or at least one that would not repeat uh, the experience of the War Industries Board in World War I which um, had essentially taken over the rights and independence of uh, private business um, and licensed them Um, to uh, be um, co-opted into the war industry, but also kind of gave them control as well over the national...
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
1: economy um, these business uh, business elites and their successes had been the real adversaries of Roosevelt through the New Deal and Roosevelt sort of looked on with dread really at the prospect of having to deal with them once again and also didn't know how he would create this, uh, this body that would be able to, for example, get around Supreme Court challenges and all the other challenges to Roosevelt's alphabet agencies that American capital had sort of thrown in his path throughout the 1930s. So Roosevelt looked for a way to rationalise economic mobilisation without giving his enemies lots and lots of power. In May 1940, uh, Roosevelt revived the First World War-era National Defence Advisory Committee. The NDAC was a a small, fairly weak and not very effective body um, that replaced um, the Office of Production Management uh, that was uh, replaced by the Office of Production Management in January 1941. The OPM had two directors the head of General Motors, William Knudsen, and the amalgamated clothing workers resident, Sidney Hillman. So he had put together uh, a head of industry and a union boss um, under one roof. And the joint appointment showed that there was um, an ambition by Roosevelt to reconcile during the war period the interests of capital and labor. Um, and he, Roosevelt, believed that it was only would only be possible to create a war economy where you had both capital and labor together uh, working towards a common goal. Um, Rose, Roosevelt referred to them as um, a single responsible head. His name is Nudson and Hillman. Um, and the most interesting and significant factor about the OPM under the two of them. Was um, the fact that Roosevelt didn't really allot much responsibility to either? Um, it was a weak organisation, uh, and this was revealed when Roosevelt replaced uh, or so, well, supplemented it anyway. The OPM with two other organisations: the Office of uh, the Office of Price Administration and Civilian Supply. Uh, that came under Leon Henderson, one of the uh, one of Roosevelt's New Deal economists. High Priorities and Allocation Board which was uh, run by the Sears and Roebuck uh, executive, Donald Nelson. Um, The growth of mobilisation agencies, as you can call them, these bodies designed to get a war economy going, um, meant that economic organisation was kept out of the hands of um, exclusively of of businessmen um, and it was really centralised in Roosevelt's hands. He has the, all these agencies which are, are relatively, um, relatively ineffectual. And perhaps the point here to create these agencies that couldn't do very much was to have them as reasonably ineffectual so that Roosevelt really could be making the key production decisions himself and yet give the impression that that was not what was happening um, to prevent any threats to his own um, executive powers. Obviously, this is quite poor administrative practice, but a lot of what Roosevelt did would fall under that, uh, that description. Roosevelt had essentially started by creating more complexity and more confusion than was um, strictly needed, um, something that probably uh, all combatant powers were guilty of, certainly Germany. Um, as at the beginning of 1941, the continuing uh, chaos over um, who should be organising um, war production um, was becoming um, aware, was becoming uh, more than obvious. David Kennedy writes, It threatened to confirm Nazi Foreign Minister Joachim Ribbentrop's sneering comment that American rearmament was the biggest bluff in the world's history. Uh, In in addition to this, Lend-Lease exacerbated uh, the situation. Um, It was unclear whether the uh, Americans or the British would have first claim on new tanks or aircraft. Um, It was unclear whether the President uh, believed the short-of-war strategy would work anyway, Um, if this was the case. What was the build-up of the American military and uh, the million uh, men um, taking uh, the draft? Why, um, what would be the timescale of this uh, military build-up? Would troops be um, de- um, demobilised after a year or two? Would uh, tanks and warships and aircraft be decommissioned? And when would the American army be forced to go overseas? Um, all these questions remain uh, ambiguous and up in the air without uh, anyone really willing or able to answer them. Um, the, if America did send uh, troops overseas, how many would be sent and what would be the composi- composition of uh, the uh, the various um, divisions sent? How much of it would be tanks? How much of it would be artillery? Would the air force, the navy, um, the marines, and the coast guard be used um, as well? And none of uh, Roosevelt's um, service chiefs have the answers to these questions either, and they're really waiting for him to supply them. So. These inefficiencies and this chaos was um, really the result of the last um, few years of American policy regarding um, the war and even regarding intervention prior to the war. There had been um, a groundswell of opinion against intervention. There had been a president who started to move towards intervention, a congress that slowly shifts in that direction as well, and yet still a reluctance on all parts to um, become involved short of war. So there was a, a kind of um, a fudge, a confusion at the, at the heart of government about um, uh, what was being proposed and what would have to be done. In Britain, um, once it becomes a clear that there will be war no matter what, the nation in general swings behind um, an end to appeasement and a preparation for war. So the ambiguity initially did not help America. Um, Knudsen asked, how much munitions productive capacity does this country need and how rapidly must it become available? in June 1941. Um, And he was here asking, really, as a businessman, a very straightforward question. The political answer is not forthcoming well into 1941. Um, In the last few weeks of 1940, Roosevelt reviewed um, one attempt to set down a comprehensive strategic vision that might guide the future of planning. Um, it came from a memorandum prepared by Admiral Harold Stark, who was the Chief of Naval Operations. Stark laid down four options for Amer- the American military and naval policy, but strongly advocated the fourth, listed uh, as Item D, or Plan Dog. Uh, the uh, Plan Dog, basically, um, was uh, part of an older strategic doctrine, uh, co-named Rainbow Five. One which was the American military's contingency plan um, during the pre war years. Rainbow Five had anticipated waging war simultaneously against two or more enemies, which were probably thought to be Germany and Japan. It was assumed that Britain would be cooperative along with France, and it thought and it envisaged sending American ground forces to Europe. Rainbow Five's premises revised. Um, now, to take account of France's defeat and the looming menace that Japan posed in the Pacific, a uh, deeply informed planned dog and constituted the foundation of all American strategic thinking from this date forward, that being the words of uh, David Kennedy. So, the structure uh, of America's war, From uh, 1941 onwards, a war on two fronts, fighting two enemies, uh, Germany and Japan, with a force being sent to Europe, is only slightly amended by the catastrophe of the fall of France, which, as I've said in previous podcasts, threw all strategic planning up in the air. Stark emphasised to Roosevelt that under no circumstances could Britain fall. Britain was the, uh, going to be the, the landing stage for defeating Germany. Stark said, If Britain wins decisively against Germany, we could win everywhere. But if she loses, the problem confronting us would be very great. And while we might not lose everywhere, we might possibly not win anywhere. And it was from this reasoning that the uh, American uh, Europe First strategy uh, emerged the uh, dis- determination to deal with Hitler as the number one enemy. Aerial bombing and a naval blockade might be options as far as Germany went, but uh, only landing troops um, by military success on, successes on shore, uh, only that way could Germany be defeated. Um, it was not only essential uh, to keep Britain, ally, Britain going as a comrade, but, uh, no less importantly, as a unsinkable aircraft carrier and a marshalling yard uh, from which a successful land action can later be launched. He wrote, finally, for making a successful land offensive, British manpower is insufficient. Offensive troops from other nations will be required. I believe that the United States, in addition to sending naval assistance, would would also need to send large air and land forces to Europe or Africa or both, uh, and to participate strongly in this land offensive. The naval task of transporting an army abroad would be large. Um, and it is in those sentences, in those words, that Stark accurately predicted America's war. And by accurately predicting America's war, he could give Roosevelt a model for war production, for what would be needed for Liberty ships, um, B 17s and everything else. Roosevelt was uh, scrupulous not to breathe a word at the start plan in public, but he agreed with every word. Anyway, I hope you find that useful and interesting, and I'm going to finish there. Um, do remember to check out our, the Explaining History Facebook group, um, and uh, I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast. All the best, bye-bye.
0: Planning for your next trip?